I've been doing a lot of things. And the thing is, I love you. What? I love you. How do you expect me to respond to this? How about you love me too? How about I'm leaving? Doesn't what I said mean anything to you? I'm sorry, Harry. I know it's New Year's Eve. I know you're feeling lonely, but you just can't show up here, tell me you love me, and expect that to make everything all right. It doesn't work this way. Well, how does it work? I don't know, but not this way. How about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? Just like you, Harry, you say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. That, of course, is the final scene of the classic romantic comedy When Harry Met Sally that came out in 1989. And that gives us the idealized romantic view of true love as Harry and Sally ride off in the sunset together on New Year's Eve. I mean, what better night to, to, uh, to begin to celebrate one's life together. And we see a movie like that, and I don't care if you're a cynic or a romantic, you see a scene like that and just like, man, that's the way it is. And it's beautiful. The subject of this morning's sermon is marriage, and that's the way we like our marriages to begin, with that declaration of love, that coming together, in a, and again, in a very romantic sense. But there's always an act two in a marriage. We don't know what happened to Harry and Sally five years later. We don't know what happened when he got sick of her taking an hour and a half to order every time they went to a restaurant. And the truth is that there are as many romantic comedies there are, there are, there are lines that talk about the ugliness of marriage as well. Let me give you an example. Let me give you several examples. Ambrose Bierce wrote a book called The Devil's Dictionary, and in that book he defined love this way, a temporary insanity curable by marriage. <laughs> Bill Cosby said this, for two people in a marriage to live together day after day is unquestionably the one miracle the Vatican has overlooked. <laughs> David Bissonette said, I recently read that love is entirely a matter of chemistry. That must be why my wife treats me like a toxic waste. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield said this, my wife and I were happy for 20 years. Then we met. <laughs> and my favorite, Rita Rudner said this, I think men who have a pierced ear are better prepared for marriage. They've experienced pain and bought jewelry. <laughs> now, we all recognize the cynical truth in each one of those lines. We've all heard the statistics about divorce. We've, we know friends, family. We certainly see celebrities, politicians whose marriages end in disaster, sometimes even in divorce. And we know more marriages of, in which husbands and wives may stay together, but there's no real love anymore. They feel trapped by 
financial obligations by the children, perhaps. They stay together not because they really want to, but because they feel like they have to. We'd all like to think that our marriages follow the romantic ideal set by Harry and Sally, but too often it's more like what we hear from Rita Rudner and Ambrose Bierce. That is the experience for at least some people in this room. That's what prompted the elders of Green Tree Community Church to write a letter to the members of the congregation, asking each of us to take a careful look at our own relationship, our own marriage. Recognize that if we allow problems to go unaddressed, that those problems can fester and they can erupt. To quote from the letter, we're each are prone to ignore the early symptoms of difficulty in our marriage. If left unaddressed, we may later find that our relationship has been shredded by shrapnel, not only denying the delight God intended, but making reconciliation very difficult, if not impossible. What an image that is, shredded by shrapnel. We're going to look today at, at marriage, what it means, what it's supposed to mean, what, gives it, what God designed it to be. So let me open in prayer, and then we'll jump into that discussion. Father, I thank you that you did create the institution of marriage, and what a blessing it can be for us. But we also know that, a, that marriage can be deeply troubling, and we can abuse it badly. And I just pray that in some way this morning we can come to a better understanding of what you designed it to be and what we should be as husbands, as wives, as people who love one another. May you help us somehow, Lord, to learn to love more fully, more deeply, more richly, whether in marriage or in any relationship, that we may become the people of God you intended us to be. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, I have to say that when I found out I was going to give a sermon about marriage, it made me nervous. Next Sunday, my wife and I will celebrate our 29th anniversary. Now, that's a great thing. And so theoretically, I know a lot about marriage. As a matter of fact, my daughter said to me when, she, when, I, when I told her I was going to give a sermon about marriage, she said, well, Dad, you know a lot about marriage, but I don't at all. I know about one marriage to one woman, but every marriage is unique, and for me to tell you about your marriage is ridiculous. I can't do it. Every marriage, even the best marriages, have strains and stresses that are often invisible to people outside the relationship, but those of us who are married know that they're there. We've, all, we've been there. Moments before I got married, I was literally ready to walk out into the church to get married. One of my brothers pulled me aside to give me some encouragement, and he said to me, you know, if you ever get divorced, it's going to be your fault. (laughs) I knew he was right. I mean, I did. I knew he was right because I married a woman who has a very even temperament, and I'm the one in the marriage who tends to play the role of the jerk. Somebody had to play the part. I took it. It's, it's, it's. I think we have a good marriage. I mean, I, I, I really do. But if we do, I give a lot more credit to God's grace and to my wife's temperament than I do to any wisdom I have in terms of how to be a good husband. Do I lose my temper with my wife? Yes, I do. Do I say unkind words to her? Absolutely. Do I ignore her needs on a daily basis? When Jesus described his vision for what marriage should be to his apostles in, in Matthew 9, their response was this. If this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. What they're saying was, is, are you kidding me? This is what you expect? We can't do this. And every married person in this room has ever really taken a serious look at what God's expectations for marriage are ought to recognize the feelings the apostles had that day. We've so debased what marriage is supposed to be. We've so cheapened it that the apostles are right. So again, I hesitate to say anything about marriage based upon my own experience and how little I understand it. 
I also recognize that there are people listening today who are in, all, in every conceivable category of relationship. Some people are dating, some people are engaged, some people are happily married, some people are miserably married, some people are widowed, some people are separated, some people are divorced, some people are, are happily single, some people are longing to be married. And I certainly don't want to underestimate the difficulties that any people in this room might be having in a relationship or a lack of relationship they might have or not have at this stage in your life. So while anyone, ever, whoever delivers a sermon ought to do so with a great deal of humility, I will say to you today that I feel poorly qualified to address a subject I know is filled with landmines. And I also know that to try to deal with every contingency of relationship in a 30-minute sermon is a fool's mission. I know I'm going to oversimplify. I know I'm going to overgeneralize. But with God's help and the power of his word, let's take a look at what he says about marriage, and hopefully those words will speak to us. The text for today is Galatians 2, 18 to 25. Let's look at that text. The words will be on the screen. I'll read them. If you have your Bibles, you might want to follow along. Here's the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Again, I think I said Galatians. It's Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Let's begin with a few basic principles that flow out of this text. It's important for us to see that we were created to live in a relationship, that our desire for human intimacy, whether that's psychological, emotional, spiritual, sexual, is all created by God and is good. The super pious among us who casually dismiss the loneliness that someone feels, the desire, the heartfelt desire and ache to be married, and dismisses that desire simply by saying, well, just look to God to meet your needs really ignore what God himself did in the face of Adam's loneliness in the Garden of Eden. Let's look at what Allender and Longman say in their book, Intimate Allies, because I think they give a perspective on this. It's important for us to see. This is what they write. God does not exclusively fill the human heart. He made mankind to need more than himself. The staggering humility of God to make something that was not to be fully satisfied with the creator and the creation is incomprehensible. God's recognition that Adam was lonely and his creation of Eve was, was a statement of incredible humility. If even, even in the Garden of Eden, this divinely created paradise, Adam is lonely, and God recognizes that loneliness and creates Eve to fill that need, that's an incredible statement of God's love. It also tells us what a disservice it is for us to dismiss someone's cries of loneliness and desire for relationship by saying, oh, just trust in God, just trust in God. You draw your strength from him. Well, yes, but, but that's true. We do need to look for God. But he did create us to live in relationship. He created our desire for intimacy. And he recognizes that Adam's isolation is not good, and so he fills that through a relationship with Eve. As he says, I will make a helper fit for him. The parade of animals that, that come before Adam, 
seem to underscore a sense of isolation is he sees these porcupines and, and, and possums come by with their mate. Adam realizes that he's unique. He's alone. These animals seem to live in family groups, but he doesn't. And he says, and God says in response to that, no suitable helper can be found. Adam is alone. It's almost as if God wants Adam to see the full range of the animal kingdom to underscore that sense of loneliness. And so that Adam will be filled with even more of a sense of delight when Eve emerges. Eve will fill a need within Adam that is divinely created and directed. As scripture says, God brought her to the man. God is the first father of the bride. He's the first one who escorts this beautiful woman in the presence of Adam and says, this is my daughter and I give her to you. What a gift. What a gift and what a statement of humility. So marriage is God's doing and was from the very beginning of time. We're created to desire intimacy and to live in a relationship. That's why Adam's first spoken words in Scripture are such a cry of joy. This is what he says. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I don't really know this, but to me, the most important words in here are the words at last. At last. Here she is. What a gift. Look what you've done for me. Adam now has someone like him who can join together with him at the deepest levels of understanding and intimacy in one flesh. Now, when we use that term, one flesh, we tend to focus on the sexual element there, and that's important, but we miss everything else. Yes, Adam and Eve were to be united in one flesh physically, but they were joined together emotionally, spiritually, psychologically as well. For the first and only time in human history, a man and a woman came together in complete harmony to serve one another and, more importantly, to serve God. And that's the picture of marriage at its best. That's what our relationships are designed to be, a man and a woman living in harmony, serving one another and serving God. When we can share our lives with our spouse, our bodies, sure, but our thoughts, our dreams, our failures, our successes, our ambitions, our, our desires, plus our desire to serve God, then we become one flesh in the way that God intended. But there's a lot more to it than that. Jesus explains these verses in Mark 10, 8, and 9, when the Pharisees ask if divorce is permissible. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, the verse we read earlier, but then adds, Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Our marriage vows are not just a pledge given to a man or woman to whom we're attracted and with whom we're in love. Our marriage vows are not just a solemn promise uttered in the presence of friends and family. Our marriage vows are not just a legal declaration finalized in the presence of a pastor or a priest. No, a marriage is a holy covenant designed by God, orchestrated by God, and pledged before God. A wedding is a sacred event that ends with a solemn promise and a pledge. A wedding shouldn't be entered into the attitude of, let's just get this stupid ceremony out of the way so we can get on to the booze and the band. Now, we all might like a good party, but if that's our attitude, we're dismissing the serious business that a wedding really is. We're created to love. We're created to revel in being loved. That's a gift from God. And the wedding ceremony seals that relationship as an act of gratitude and commitment before God. But that's not the picture in a lot of our marriages, is it? Too often, the reality of our relationship with our spouse is that we're defensive. We're dishonest. We hide our fears from one another and shade the truth about who we really are because we're afraid of what our spouse might think if he or she really knew who we were. So, so instead of finding intimacy with our spouse, that God created desire for intimacy, we shop mindlessly or play golf obsessively or work ridiculously long hours, or we pour all our energies into the kids, or we descend into online relationships, maybe even pornography, all of which will rob our marriage of the intimacy that God created. 
And some even go from spouse to spouse because we have such a faulty view of what marriage is supposed to be. It becomes all about us and our desires and not about this commitment to the person that God has given us. Something's wrong with our marriages because something's wrong with us. And that's what's implied in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, Adam and Eve lived in the world before the fall. Because they lived in the continual presence of God, they didn't live with the insecurities that plague you and they plague, that plague me. We were created so that our sense of security, our sense of self, our purpose, our meaning, our wholeness all came from God. That's the way Adam and Eve were created to live. But when we broke away from God in disobedience, we forfeited that sense of meaning and wholeness. That's not what we experience. That's not what any of us experience. Our entire lives are spent searching to regain that which was lost in the Garden of Eden. There's an emptiness in us that we seek to fill in all kinds of inappropriate ways. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is looking for God. And that's it exactly. All of us knock on doors that won't satisfy. The door might be fame or success or money or power or status. We knock on lots of different doors, but none of those are going to satisfy us. To paraphrase the old song, we're looking for God in all the wrong places. As broken people, we look for validation in these ultimately unsatisfying ways, and we bring that brokenness into the marriage relationship. And our spouse brings that same brokenness into the marriage relationship. So too often, marriages become a battleground for two people who don't know who they are, who see marriage as a competition or a power struggle instead of the haven for intimacy that God created it to be. Marriage becomes all about my needs, my priorities, my values, my interests. Instead of being naked and unashamed, we clothe ourselves in this metaphorical clothing, seeking to disguise our flaws and our failures. So we take out our insecurities on the person we pledge to love. He or she takes out our insecurities on us. And we're unwilling to extend grace to our spouse because we're so caught up in this competition. We seem to have missed the all-important metaphor that Paul uses again and again when he describes the, the relationship between Christ and the church. When you read Ephesians 5, 31 to 33, there's those three verses. There's a verse in the middle that's really surprising, I think. This is what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, we've heard that already. This is the one that's puzzling. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul is saying, and I can't claim to fully understand it, that marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship with his church. Just as Christ sacrificed himself for his people, just as he forged an unbreakable bond with us that is designed to bring glory to God, so we are to live sacrificially in an unbreakable bond that brings glory to God. That's what marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a tangible manifestation of God's covenant at work on earth. A covenant is a divinely instituted and orchestrated relationship. When God came to Abraham in Genesis 12, he, cre he created a relationship with Abraham that exists to this day. He said, I will make you the father of a mighty nation. That mighty nation is us, the church. That was a, a, a covenant, a contract designed by God, orchestrated by God, performed by God. And our marriages are supposed to reflect that same kind of reality. Marriage is not just about staying in love. It's about keeping covenant. Christ left his father, took the church as his bride, and holds fast to her forever. We're to leave our parents, take our spouse as our bride, and hold fast to her forever. Simply put, that means we're committed to our spouse no matter what. Now, I know there are people in this room who are saying, well, that's easy to say, but you don't know the reality of my marriage. And you're right. 
I, there are biblical grounds for divorce. There are, are some, some situations that are extreme. And I certainly don't want to deny the pain and the reality of that, that truth. But it also means that we better not run to divorce court the first time that things turn sour, as, in, as they inevitably will at some point. There are going to be struggles. There are going to be strains. And again, and again, I don't want to be insensitive. I know there are circumstances that some people find themselves in that are ugly, brutal, and incredibly painful. But the ideal is two people committed because we are keeping covenant. Think about how Christ treats the church, us. We're flawed. We're indifferent. We're rebellious. Yet Christ doesn't abandon us. He never abandons us. We don't have to live in shame before him because he recognizes the depth of our sin and he loves us anyway. We're ensconced in his love forever despite our flaws and he never lets us go. We're the recipients of his grace. He loves us in spite of everything that's wrong with us. And that's the model for marriage. I mean, let's face it. We gain weight. We lose our hair. We turn gray. We forget anniversaries. We don't pick up our socks off the floor. We snore. We become forgetful. We get sick. We lose our job. We fail. We drink too much. We spend money foolishly. We sink into passivity. We take our spouse for granted. We no longer communicate at all or well. Perhaps we're even unfaithful. We know we've disappointed our spouse because we don't fit the ideal. And our spouse has disappointed us because he or she doesn't fit the ideal either. And so in the worst marriages, they descend into accusation, fault-finding, finger-pointing. And in the best marriages, we find ourselves there sometimes. We're afraid to be naked and unashamed in each other's presence because we think our failures will be flung back in our face. The first thing that Adam and Eve did after the fall was to clothe themselves to hide their nakedness. And we've been hiding who we are ever since. But here's something we really need to understand, and here's something that's really important. The first thing that God did after Adam and Eve committed the sin of disobedience in the garden was not to condemn them. I mean, that's what I think we think happened. But if you read the text, and Tom is going to get there in the, in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But if you read the account of the fall in Genesis 3 and see how God responded to it, the first thing he did after, after confronting Adam and Eve was to, was to pr- pronounce judgment on Satan and to promise that one day he, God, would reconcile mankind to himself. The first thing he did was to pronounce a statement of condemnation of Satan and of grace to us. He said to us, he said to Adam and Eve, and by extension to us, one day I will send someone who will destroy Satan and will bring you back in the right kind of relationship with me. I will make it possible for you to live in harmony with me again. That was a promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we live in the wake of that promise. That's the reality. He came to extend grace to us. And that's, that ought to be instructive for us. Because when we talk about marriage as a covenant, and we think about how God treats the church, he treats us with grace. With grace. If marriage in some way mirrors that covenant, then it seems to me that we ought to be agents of grace in our own households. If the church is the bride of Christ, and he sees our flaws and loves us anyway, and forgives us for them, then doesn't that say something about how we ought to treat one another? A good marriage is a covenant of grace in which two people who are flawed can come together and make mistakes and blow it and be forgiven, receive mercy rather than judgment. All of us, no matter who we are, have good days, bad days, terrible days. None of us have it together. None of us have figured this out. But rather than a clash of egos, a grace-centered marriage is a marriage in which we can blow it, and it's okay because we're committed to one another no matter what. We can learn and laugh and grow together because of all the places in the world, a good marriage ought to be a place 
where we can be ourselves, warts and all. I want to give you a model of how this works. And the example I'm going to give you, I recognize, is, is in many ways superficial. But, but in many ways, it deals with the reality of our marriages. Because I, when we talk about grace, we talk about it in the supernatural sense of Christ dying on the cross and forgiveness of our sins. But the way that's played out in the reality of our lives is in the very simple day-to-day way we respond to circumstances of life. And I want to go back to the very beginning of my marriage. Because my wife taught me a lesson about grace that was really helpful, and I think it sort of, I hope, has set the tone for the way we treat each other, at least on our best days. It was our first Christmas together. And like all newlywed couples, we brought some expectations and some fantasies about what Christmas together was going to mean. It's, it's a very romantic, family-centered holiday, and here we come. So we quickly found that we had competing visions of what Christmas was all about. The centerpiece of, for us, at least, of our personal family Christmas time was putting up the Christmas tree. So when we began to have the discussion about what that was going to be, I found out that Joan's family did things very differently than we did. Joan comes from a traditional German home, her maiden name is Sorgenfrei. In, the, in traditional German homes, you put up your Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. The kids go to bed, and then her mom and dad would every year put up the Christmas tree, so when the kids came downstairs, it was like, there it is. Look what Santa has done. Well, I wasn't about to go for that. <laughs> we didn't have any kids. What's the point of that? We were a first weekend of December family growing up. That's how the Hollies did it. So I'm not about, I'm not about to wait till Christmas Eve and get the last scraggly little runny tree on the lot. We got through that one pretty quickly. That wasn't that hard. Then we go to the Christmas tree lot and buy the tree. Now, I found out something. Again, I didn't see it coming. We get out of the car. Joan heads over to the Scotch Pines. I head over to the, I head over to the Balsams. We were a Balsam family. They were a Scotch Pine family. We look at each other like, what are you doing? So we compromise, and we got a third kind of tree that, that we co- both could live with. So we get the tree. We take it home. It's time to put it up. We get out of the car, take it in the house. Now, part of the ceremony is you have to build a fire in the fireplace. But when I grew up, my dad built the fires. I wasn't that good at it yet. I, you know, I, I just didn't know how to do it. So we had visions of chestnuts roasting on an open fire, that kind of fireplace, you know, that kind of fire, rather. What we got was this smoldering, smoky mess that barely ignited. And Joan's looking at me like, what kind of man are you? I couldn't get it together. So then it's time to put on the Christmas music, right? We had a stereo. Remember stereos? We, so we go and we get our records. It's time to put them on. Well, I grew up in a Perry Como, Bing Crosby Christmas music family. Joan grew up in a Elvis Christmas album family. <laughs> so she starts to put on this music, and I'm going, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So we had to deal with that one. We got past that one okay. But then it was time to actually put up the tree. Now, we made a fundamental mistake. I mean, we really did. We made a fundamental mistake, and that is we bought this cheap dime, dime store Christmas tree stand. We put this thing up. We get it up. No matter how we tightened, no matter how we adjusted, no matter what we did, we could not get that tree to stand up. It just kept going, boom, one after another. Now, I'm a Christian, and, and I, like a good Christian man, I responded the way all good Christian men react to disappointment and frustration. I figured if I cussed loudly enough and longly enough, that tree would finally stay in place. I lost it. I just completely lost it. I already felt less than a man because I couldn't build a fire. Now I can't put up a Christmas tree. And so I'm trying to put this thing up, and I'm 
it just keeps coming down no matter what we do. And, and I'm getting frustrated and I'm saying things my wife never knew that I even knew how to say. And it's ugly. And she says, please don't say that. Please don't say that. Please don't act this way. And that just makes me madder. <laughs> so I finally had to say to her, Joan, get out of here. Just go upstairs. I, I, I just can't deal with this. Just leave. I'll, I'll do it. It did not exactly set the mood for a, friendly, a family friendly evening. So she leaves. She goes upstairs. I finally was able to cuss the tree into place. It did stay. But it totally ruined the evening. It totally ruined the evening. I want to fast forward seven weeks. It's Valentine's Day. Talk about another day filled with potential landmines, okay? <laughs> so I did the appropriate thing. I went out and I bought my wife a necklace. She likes jewelry. It was very safe. It was sadly predictable, but I bought her a necklace, and I bring it home on our first Valentine's together, the newlyweds, and I give it to her. She makes the appropriate squeal of delight and then returns to the store and gets what she wants. But... <laughs> She brings out this gift, this big, honking, long, square box. Big. I mean, it's like this big. Real, real low to the ground, like that. She brings out, puts it on the kitchen table. What the heck is this? I mean, it looked like a stereo box. I opened this thing. It is an industrial strength, heavy-duty, lifetime guarantee Christmas tree stand. <laughs> This thing, seriously, could hold a sequoia. <laughs> and that gift was a statement of grace. I mean, that's what that was. What my wife did was she looked at a situation that had turned ugly, and she says, I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to make this go away. We're never going to have this problem again. I'm not going to sulk. I'm not going to pout. I'm not going to hold a grudge. I'm not going to beat you up for what a jerk you were that day. I'm going to solve the problem. And I think that's how grace manifests itself in the day-to-day -day reality of our lives. It is, is Jones saying to me, okay, you're a jerk, but I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to make it so that this never happens again, and it doesn't. You know, we've got this down. We are now a first weekend of December, balsam buying, Perry Como, Bing Crosby listening, chestnuts roasting an open fire, making Christmas tree putting up family. We've got it down. It works because for 28 years we've now had that stand, and it works because of, because of the grace my wife showed to me. Now, you might say, well, that's not grace. Yes, it is. That's exactly what grace is. It's two people working together to solve problems, two people working together to say, I'm not going to hold this over your head. We're going to solve it. Now, it's simple in something like that. I will admit that. It's a lot more difficult when the problems are deeply rooted and dangerous and maybe even life-threatening. The principle is the same. The execution of that principle is radically different. But I think for most people, the day-to-day -day reality of our lives is the simple things, which we allow to fester. We don't deal with them. We don't solve them. We let them go. Grace means we overlook our spouse's faults. Grace means we look for solutions. We don't point fingers. Grace means we know we're not perfect. But if God can extend his mercy to us, then we ought to be able to extend mercy to somebody we've pledged to stay with forever. If a holy, perfect God can extend grace to us, can, can't I extend grace to my wife? Maybe grace means that though the fall is sour, what marriage is supposed to be, that we can work together in this mutually committed relationship to solve whatever the problems are that arise. They're going to arise. Some of them are going to be very serious. Some of them are going to be very divisive potentially. But the spirit of grace, as Christ treats the church, is what he expects us and asks us to bring to the marriage. Two people working together, committed to one another, 
forever. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for marriage. I thank you for the good marriages in this room. And I pray for those who are struggling in a bad marriage because I cannot imagine the pain of the anguish of that ongoing struggle and strain, how difficult that must be. And I just pray, Lord, that there are people in this room who are struggling, that you would give them the wisdom to seek help. Stephen's ministers, pastors, the counselors of this church, in some way they would reach out and seek help. Thank you, Father, for giving us human relationships to find meaning and purpose and wholeness and love in those. It's a beautiful gift you've given us, and I pray we would treat it well. In Christ's holy name, amen.